what are the barriers, perceived and real, that still make partial self-funding a challenge for employers and for their advisors? And how can both move past that to their advantage? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we are speaking with Michael Pullman and Spencer Bryden, both of Novo Benefits. Michael's the president and Spencer is the regional VP of sales. And we've talked an awful lot on the podcast about self-funding and partial self-funding, if you prefer. And yet there are still a whole range of folks, largely folks who are kind of in that mid-market where they might not have seriously considered self-funding before, but all of a sudden they're looking for alternatives to bring their clients. And so we thought that it would be interesting to talk about this in, in maybe a little bit of a different context. And with that, let's start here, guys. What are some of the barriers that keep employers and brokers from self-funding? Yeah, David, this is Mike Pullman. Thanks again for having us. It's interesting because I think that the employers and, and brokers, sometimes they collude on some of those issues, but sometimes they're very independent. Employers tend to have perceived risk issues. They oftentimes think, wow, self-funding. So for so many years, the carriers and so many have told them that you can't be self-funded until you're a certain critical size or those kinds of things. When the ACA passed, all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, everybody's offering self-funding down to 25 lives. What the heck? So I think there's still some residual tail to that. There's a lot of you know CFOs and personnel that I talk to that really have to overcome the concerns of perceived risk and that they're just not big enough. So we do a lot of education around that. I think the other thing is a perceived workload on the employer's portion where they believe that, oh man, I'm going to have to do a lot more accounting work, a lot more of this. It's easier just to pay a bill once a month and, and forget about it, right? So I think those are maybe the two main items that I see on the employer's side. The broker side is interesting as well. There's there's obviously a perceived complexity, particularly when you're trying to get creative with a self-funded plan. They tend to favor an, an ASO model or a carry, you know, because they're well aligned there. The the other thing is misaligned incentives that I see. The reality is is that it's so much easier to work with a carrier model because of its fully insured or ASO and jumping into the TPA realm or a vertically integrated TPA, they, uh, they tend to see those complexities are worked out because they've already prefabbed whatever they're getting in the environment where you're trying to get creative with it. That's where they see things that don't go well. And they probably have had either a bad experience and then never went back to it or have heard about the horror stories and they can't get over that and, and just kind of stay where it's safe with their clients. Do you think that some of that might come from them being concerned about network disruption and not being able to do a good match on the wherever they're moving to? Some of it comes from that. The reality is, is there's so many options out there, including non-network solutions like reference-based pricing. And so I think that 
they, they're so worried about having a bad experience with their client that it oftentimes gets them nervous to go away with, from something that's working. The network analysis, you know, obviously the geos and disruptions and all those things can be handled. So there's a high level of confidence that can be generated in that process. But I do believe that uh, there's a lot of, the, you know, if it ain't broken, let's not fix it. One of the things that I know that some brokers kind of worry about is that to them, unless they've got somebody really adequate helping them or really great helping them, the components of a self-funded plan end up looking to the client like a bag of parts rather than like a cohesive whole. Um, are, are you guys seeing that? And what are some of the ways that advisors can help themselves first and then their clients get over that? Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting thing because a lot of times we find that uh, the brokers want to get creative. There's some that, that are very interested and get creative and they look at all these this bucket of parts, as you mentioned. They really have a hard time knowing which parts can even go together. And so there's a lot of confusion on that end. They get really excited about these solutions, but unless you're doing this day in and day out like we do, they run into problems trying to connect these parts. Or as I was talking to Spencer earlier about this, we've seen also brokers that come to the table and they're like, I really like this idea, this idea, this idea. And oftentimes they force those onto a TPA. They're not really positioned to be able to integrate those or even trying to do that well. And so that it does take a lot of understanding of implementation and how to well design these programs to make sure that they do work well together, not just great ideas connected, you know, and then have it be kind of a big failure. Yeah, the interoperability is a big piece of that because it's, it's one thing to get all these great solutions put in place, but you need to understand how they're going to communicate with each other to make sure that they're engaging members at the right time. So if we really want to move away from a fully insured model because we have zero control as an employer and we end up every 11 months settling for the least worst renewal and playing that whole that whole dance in that game, paint a picture. What does true independence and transparency look like in the self-funded space? So this is kind of my why from way back when. When I when I went out and started Novo Benefits, the reality was is that I realized that there was a lack of independence and transparency. There's misaligned incentives not only through the carriers, but oftentimes through big brokerage houses. They're all about the dollar. And so they drive some of those solutions even with their own realms. Independence to me has to be that you don't get financially something over another. So, for example, you need to be completely transparent in your fee structure. You have to be able to be transparent. And in our, as a program manager, we have to be transparent not only for the broker, but also for the client. And so we have, we have transparency is very important on both fronts. You can be transparent. I've had situations in the past where people have been transparent, but they're not independent. And so independent would mean that you're not going to gain in any way. So you could be transparent and say, I get this override that still is inducing them potentially not to show you other solutions or those kinds of things. They may be clear that they're sharing what they're making on it even, but that doesn't mean that they're independent. I know that there's been several times where quotes have come in on groups and a stop loss carrier calls me and says, I don't think I was shown. And it was because they were making an override with one, but didn't show the other. So that independence is the other component. And we really aspire to both of those, meaning that our salespeople and the way that we're geared is not to drive anything but independence and transparency. So you have to have both. So we talked a lot earlier about the the bag of parts thing, but there are a number of different components in a partially self-funded plan that have to be knitted together. What are they and where are the pitfalls in knitting those together? I'll start off here, and I think Spencer 
add some great things as well. But, you know, it's it's changing. It used to be that you need an administrator to administer the claims, a third-party administrator. You need a PBM, right? You either need a network or you need to go down a reference-based pricing path, something to be able to control the cost to some degree. And then, you know, there's different clinical, but, you know, in our world now to get these point solutions and to get things to run well in the interoperability that Spencer was talking about, you do need engagement and navigation. You do need things that will actually drive these point solutions because an annual open enrollment meeting doesn't get it done. You need somebody in real time pointing to these solutions and advocating for them. So we've found that that's become another critical component is some kind of care coordination or navigation. And it could be through either a DPC, could be through a care coordination team, but those are becoming more and more of a, a mainstay. And then you have clinical and you have all kinds of cost containment strategies. Spencer, what would you add to that? Yeah, I think Mike nailed it, but uh, the big thing for me is all the different pieces that you need to pull together. A basic self-funded plan from a high-performing plan, which is what solutions are you using for special TRX, for second opinions, for specialized care, for surgical costs um, and quality metrics. There's a lot of different pieces to pull together. And that care navigation that Mike mentioned is really the, the piece that you can make sure people are being steered to the right solution at the right time. And now a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion. So there are a lot of different channels that brokers can go through in order to craft a self-funded plan. What are some of the pros and cons of each different avenue that they might be able to take? Yeah, so David, the reality is the traditional insurance channels historically have been the marketplace for most brokers. You know, they've either gone through a fully insured through the Bucas, the Blues, United Citizens, Etnas, or they or they say, okay, fine, we're going to go to self-funding now, but we're going to do it on their terms a little bit. They usually kind of show a gap in price to make it more effective to be fully insured longer. But eventually they go to an ASO type program. The reality is their other option would be to go to a TPA. But again, the carriers tend to have a line to keep you in the ASO model because they make the most money fully insured in ASO. When you get to a TPA, then it's oftentimes a vertically integrated TPA where these TPAs make their revenue streams off of hidden arrangements that they have. So you really are getting kind of a prefabbed series of options. It's almost like a choose your own adventure, but they know which five ones you're going to end up with. So, and it's because of the revenue streams that drive most of that. So we have our preferred vendor partners and such. Unbundling that, they make that very difficult because they don't want that to happen. So there's a lot of components there. What's so different about the philosophy of independence and transparency that we aspire to and, and a lot of other brokers and broker aggregators and such are all doing is they're, they're trying to work through that maze and really try and create that independence 
independence by bringing these programs together and kind of prefabbing these programs oftentimes so that they know that they'll work. We've been able to do that for the last decade of helping brokers and clients do that. And so that's really what we've spent our time doing. But it's it's critical to understand that trying to do that through the traditional channels is going to have all this resonance to it. You know, working with an aggregator, somebody that's actually blazed those trails, you can't do it as an army of one, but you can do it as an army of hundreds. So I think that's probably a pretty important thing to understand when you're working with those confines and channels. Does that also help brokers navigate an area that they're not generally familiar with? And that's the whole area of stop loss, because for a lot of advisors, who are new to partial self-funding plans, talking to a stop-loss carrier is like speaking to somebody who's speaking a foreign language. Yeah, so stop-loss is is definitely one of the pieces there, and especially helping some brokers oftentimes approach stop-loss, and they might not understand all the contract language or even the terms or how to work with where they're at from a stop-loss perspective to where they're going. We have a lot of conversations with brokers where they don't even understand like which contracts might be best. We get in good conversations about what we do. I mean, we use different contracts than a lot of brokers do. The TPAs tend to promote certain similar contracts because it's easier for them to close out their books. We oftentimes use mixed contracts. And so it just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And so I think navigating that and helping an employer understand that is something that's really critical. But not just that, but the program management as a whole. How would that interface? And you can't just shop stop loss with a bunch of crazy solutions. You generally have to market that those solutions to the stop loss carrier so you're getting proper discounts so that their pricing reflects what those solutions and the validated results really drive. And that's a whole nother complexity that a traditional broker might just go out there and market stop loss, but they're not really able to get the stop loss markets to respond with rate discounts that are appropriate for what you put together. So if I'm an advisor, I don't want to go from a world that's completely opaque and where I have no independence. I want to make sure that I have a world that's fully transparent and where I do have independence. How do I figure that out? What do I look for? Yeah, this is interesting because I've always said, follow the money. If you can look at the contracts and you can determine where the money is, that's a good litmus test. I know that sometimes you'll see like a Blue Cross contract and they have like two paragraphs on the prescription benefit management side of things. Say it's a Blue Cross entity that's using Prime. Well, there's an unholy relationship there. And if you see that, you know that there's sharing in revenue, right? If that thing's not eight pages long and it doesn't have the detail broken out, then there's no way you're getting a, a straight up pass or deal or, or any kind of a deal like that. So it's important to, to look at the contracts and be able to understand that. I think that we use a statement of transparency on all of our contracts and so that everybody knows that independence and statement of transparency allows them to understand what our philosophy is there. You can get that from third-party administrators as well and helping them understand. So again, a statement of transparency is is probably one of the better ways. We see that all the time. And, and unfortunately, probably way too much of it, but that's a great red flag to look for. You know, one of the things that I think also might be daunting for some advisors who are thinking about getting into the partially self-funded market is the amount of time that it takes to put together a quote. I mean, the Industrial Performance Group did a study a number of years ago and found that most salespeople are only direct selling about 38% of their time. The rest of the time, they're doing quotes and dealing with minutiae in the office and paperwork. So, how do you reduce that time and complexity? Because, I, I mean, I've been involved with quotes that have taken a week or 10 days to put together. How do you help an advisor deal with that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few different ways that you can go about that. One is to work with the people that do it day in and day out and are able to take that complexity down. The other is to, there are a lot of turnkey solutions out there that are actually really great in the industry where you've got those pre-vetted components that are known to work together. So you're not having to try to piece everything together on the back end, but going with that solution out of the box that's ready to go. Uh, for people that want a little bit more customization or to be able to build something truly from the ground up, I think that's where technology is really coming into play. I mean, we built Nova Connection based on a, a rules-based engine and an ecosystem of vendors that's always evolving so that we're able to always know which vendors are able to work together with certain TPAs, with each other. And we have all those rules already pre out, so you're not trying to do that fly. Once you build the program, you know that it's going to work together. What if somebody comes in and is talking with you guys and says, well, I've, I've got this cost containment solution that I want to use, and, and it's not a vendor that is part of a, yours or somebody else's whole package. How, how do you handle that? I've spent a lot of years of my life going in and doing that for people. So people say that, hey, I've got this vendor. We need you to check it out. We're going to go and do a full vetting of that vendor if we think it's necessary. There's a lot of different things that we're going to go into in that vetting process to look through it, looking at the data, uh, talking to people that have used it before to see if that is, in fact, a, a good option or not. And then we'll be honest with people. If we do that vetting, they might want to hear from us that it's going to be a great fit. But if it's not, we'll tell them. I think one other thing I would just add to that, Spencer, is is that the reality is is that we've vetted hundreds, literally hundreds of different solutions. And so, again, working with trailblazers that have spent so much time vetting those solutions, we know how to contrast those against the other solutions that are in the marketplace. Sometimes they get really excited about one solution, but they don't realize that there's actually three or four in that same vein. And helping them contrast those, they oftentimes come to us with one solution, and when they realize that the other solutions might have more to offer they oftentimes trade up in a sense. Well, we talked a little bit earlier, Spencer, you mentioned about, about technology and the role the technology is going to play. We've got a few minutes left. Let's, let's delve into that a little bit. Part of the time that it takes to put a quote together is that it's technically, a lot of it's manual, I should say. Do you see technology changing that in the near term? And where do you see that driving? As we do this recording, we're all quarantined, or at least some of us are. You guys came into the office together, bless your hearts. But we're learning how to use technology in ways that maybe we've never thought of before. Where is it today and where do you see it going? Yeah, I think technology is already playing a pretty big role in our industry and it's only going to continue to grow. You know, the famous quote from Mark Andreessen was software is eating the world. You know, the healthcare industry is not immune to that. Technology and automation right now is already making it more efficient to build self-funded health plans. You see a lot of technology and analytics and data aggregation as well that is going to play a role. And from our standpoint, as we start to introduce AI and machine learning into the process, we're making it much easier to be able to create customized plan stacks that are targeted at a specific population, as opposed to building solutions that are meant more universally or globally. You're looking at the specific needs of an employer and their members and being able to target that based on the data. And that drives off census data? So census data is the first part of it, but really getting into the actual claims of an organization and the actual health care spend that they're doing today is what's going to be more powerful. If we can look at a population and say, you've got a high incidence of diabetes, you got a lot of orthopedic surgeries, we know which solutions then are going to be the best fit. And through that machine learning concept, you're going to be able to see, okay, based on this data set, this is what was recommended. This is what the impact was. So it's going to continually refine over time what those recommendations are. 
And yet I hear a lot of listeners in their in their brain going, yeah, Spencer, that's great, but it's a 50 life case and I can't get any claims information. Or mm-hmm. in some states, it's a 100 life case and I can get claims information, but it's dirty and it's not usable. How do you get past that? Yeah, so the first step is to use uh, personal health questionnaires, something we recommend all groups do if they don't have access to claims data. We've got a system online that makes it really easy. There's other ones out in the industry. I don't care which one you use, but you need to understand that health population. If you're building a plan just based off of the census, you don't have a really much, very, very much insight, if any at all, into what's actually going on behind the scenes. So we've got about a minute left. If you guys want to sum up, where do you see all of this going in the future? I see technology playing a big role. I see it creating a little bit of a shift in the role of the advisor as well. By the, the advisors that are able to use technology efficiently are going to see a lot of gains in their own efficiency. You're going to see them be able to free up more time for things like prospecting and building relationships. So using that right combination of technology and service is going to allow for a lot smaller, leaner brokerages to build bigger books of business. I think you're going to see a lot of the independent brokers really be able to step up and and play against the bigger houses. The big houses have a lot of overhead. They've got a lot of resources that they put on staff. So for a smaller broker to be able to use technology to augment that, they're going to be able to scale their business much more efficiently. Yeah, and I would, Mike, any last thoughts? Yeah, I would probably agree with him on that. I think that you know, there's a lot of brokerages that are trying to stay independent, but they're using broker aggregators to try and tap into volumes and everything. And so I think a combination of these broker aggregator arrangements where they can still have critical influence, but then tying that into technology to make them light and fast and nimble, it's going to create these super advisors that are going to be able to spend all their time actually out there, like Spencer said, highly efficiently working with the relationship side of things and really having the information at their fingertips, but not have to be buried in the office and be doing some of the hard work that's been done in the past that's been more manual and those types of things. So I think the value that they provide is going to change. And I I think their efficiencies are going to change the way in which they can compete. I think there's going to be a lot of nimble brokers out there that actually transform the way they do things. And that's a great place to leave our conversation for today. Michael Pullman and Spencer Bryden from Nova Benefits. Guys, thanks so much for an interesting conversation. Thank you, David. We appreciate it. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.